source of true delight, my unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Turn to, surprise, Book of Romans. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe surprise the next chapter, chapter 11. This is on page 946. If you don't have your Bible, I would like to use the Bible that's in the pew or the chair that blue book in front of you, um, or, yeah, beneath a chair or on the pew, it's on page 946. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. That's the reading of God's Word. I've entitled this this sermon, Grace and Hardening, and I don't know of two words that could be so polar opposite as grace and hardening. The one speaking of our receiving all of the good and gracious things that God has promised and the commitment or the promise is measured by the fact that he's even given his own son to die for sinners, to restore us to himself. What what greater statement of love? What greater statement to say, come under the arms of my protection and shelter and transformation and salvation. I've given my son for you. That's grace. And it means that no matter what your condition, no matter your sinfulness or brokenness, no matter how deep or long it is, no matter what it involves, that, that's, I'm not inviting one or the other or this one or that one or only the best. Anyone under any condition, come, receive grace. Or this terrible word of hardening. We, none of us would want to be, you know, to be said on my gravestone, what a hard-hearted man. I bet none of you are like, well, I hope that's on my gravestone. No. <laughs> what a hard-hearted person. Just can't stand the thought of that. Of course, we know from what goes on in a 
human being's heart and mind that such a hard-hearted man is probably some confusion of brokenness and hurt that he's received and his own response to it and it's layered under and so he's cruel and mean to other people because of his own pain and his own evil in response to that pain and that's what he's become. But that would be a description as opposed to grace standing under the protection and love forever of God or being a hard person against that God. And those are really the only alternatives in this passage or or the whole Bible. There's no big fat middle ground for just nice people. No. It's either helpless people receiving and enjoying the grace of God or people turning from that and hardening themselves against God. So grace and hardening as it's set forth here. Paul begins this uh, chapter with a pretty expected question. Has God rejected his people, the Jews? Because at the end of chapter 10, as we saw last week, he shows that they've had every opportunity down through history and especially at the time of the gospel because the gospel came first to them and yet they've rejected it. And even though this question arose before in history at the time, for instance, when the Jews were exiled because of their idolatry and cast out of Israel hundreds of years before, and the question would arise coming up to that exile and during that exile, has God rejected his people? So again, at this point, that question arises. But here it's even more important because you might say, well, that was a provisional history, but now we're at the culmination of Jewish history. The thing that Jewish history always pointed to is Messiah. And he's come and they've rejected him. Surely then, as he ends that in chapter 10, God saying, my whole of the history with you Jews has been my outstretched arms and you've refused me. And Paul saying... Well, is this it? Is that kaput for the Jews? Has God completely turned his back? Well, in chapter 11, here's the basic answer Paul gives. First, in our passage, he says no. In fact, the no is already there in the question in the Greek. The way the Greek question is asked assumes a negative answer. And the other hint that you have that he's going to say no is he says, uh, his people, has God rejected his people? Well, he's not going to reject his people, saying he still owns them. They're still his. They belong to him. So already in the question, you get the anticipation of this uh, adamant, most vehement way you can say it in the Greek. May it never be. No, no way. But the first ten verses answer it this way. No, the rejection is only partial. And then verses 11 through 32, no, the rejection is only temporary. Okay? That's how Paul answers it in this chapter. And in the last few verses, he praises God for his amazing, wonderful providence in dealing with the Jews and the Gentiles. So, no, it's only partial. No, it's only temporary. Now, in our section, these, these ten verses, uh, I want to follow uh, Stott's outline, which is so good to, to lay it out. And this is how he answers, no, it's only partial. First, he gives a personal answer. Then he gives a theological answer. Then he gives a historical answer, and he gives a contemporary answer, okay? So first, the uh, personal answer. He gives himself as exhibit A for the fact that God has not rejected his people. He gives his credentials not to brag here. He's just saying, look, I'm as Jewish as it gets, okay? 
Has God uh, rejected his people? No, God has chosen me to be his. And look, I'm the chief example of what I just talked about in chapter 10, verse 21. He didn't say chapter 10, verse 21. It wasn't there, but <laughs> but that's where it is. Okay, so uh, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul says, I was the most disobedient and contrary. I attacked the people of Messiah. I was opposed to Messiah himself, and he had to appear in heaven and say, why are you fighting against me? And yet God had mercy on me. And not only that, he's picked this Jew to be his chief instrument to the Gentiles. I would say no, I don't think he's rejected his people. Because he's using me and us, us other uh, Jews, uh, Jewish Christians, to win the world for Christ, actually. And he names them in chapter 16, Priscilla, uh, Prisca and Aquila, Adronicus and Junia, uh, shows that no, he's not rejected these people that he foreknew. Uh, these are the people that uh, we'll get to in a minute that God is using as his remnant. So that's the personal thing. No, God has not rejected his people. Why would I be in the middle of God's purpose? Uh, why would he use Jews in the way he is to bring the gospel? He has not rejected his people. Secondly, there's the theological answer in that phrase in, in verse uh, 2 where he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Okay, now this isn't talking about the foreknowledge of an individual person, but of the nation as a whole. God set his love, he set his electing purpose on the nation as a whole. Now what does that mean? It means that God knew their character before he ever set his love on them. Do you think this is a surprise to God? Like God before the foundation of the world, now he gets here and he says, you know, if I'd have known you were going to be like this, I never would have picked you in the first place. You see, the point is, this is the people he foreknew, knowing them from beginning to end, knowing what their character would be, and he set his love upon them to use them for his purposes. And Paul says, he's not going to turn away from that purpose. Uh, that, that, is, that purpose stands in his eternal counsel. He's never failed of his purpose and he's, uh, with the Jews, and he's not going to fail of his purpose with the Jews in Paul's day or forever. Uh, they stand under this once-for-all choice of God. He'll always be saving his people from among those Jews, Paul says. So there's the personal answer, me, the theological answer, God has foreknown his people. But then there's a historical answer as he goes back to Elijah. And here with Elijah, it was such a, an interesting example for Paul because he takes it as a parallel time in history to what's happening with Messiah. But think about this. Israel at that time, worshiping the Baals and almost totally like there was a landslide of revolt against God and almost the whole nation was against God and worshiping Baal. Paul says it's the same thing now as they are rejecting Messiah. They are just like they were in worshiping the Baals by turning away from the living God who now has manifested himself in Christ. And now they're turning away from this manifestation of the living God. Uh, and therefore, they are landing themselves in the same category as the Jews of old. And of course, in that day, after uh, this wonderful victory of Elijah, and you can read about it there in the Old Testament, but in this glorious victory of Elijah over the 450 uh, uh, 
Baal uh, priests. He then flees because uh, Jezebel puts out a hit on him, right? She's going to kill him. And so he's in a cave and he says, Lord, I'm the only one. I'm the only one here. It's like, I'm the only one who stands for you and I'm about to die myself. It's about to be all over. And this is where God reveals to him, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, 7,000, because of the use of the word seven and even the use of the word thousand, is probably a symbolic number. But that means then, don't worry. It's the word for, it means something that's perfect. It means something that's complete. And so God is saying, I will fully keep my purpose of saving a people for myself. And the fact that it's a symbolic number leaves it wide open for however many God chooses to bring to himself, you see. It's not like constricted to this number. It's like, I'll save all those I choose to save and nobody will stop me. And I will continue my purpose of saving my people among uh, the Jews. And so the same, though, uh, issue of that day was the issue in Paul's day of not trusting in the mercy of God. And... It's important to realize it's not that these people had retained their own faith by their own power, but the statement of how God says, I've kept for myself, these people means I have sustained the faith of my people. I've been faithful. I have sustained them in their trust in me and their commitment to me no matter what. And this is the way God operates, that no matter what the sinfulness of Israel would ever be, God would sustain his remnant, his seed, uh, like a shoot coming out of a tree that's been cut down, and it just continues to have life. And it continues to put little seedlings out. You think, how are we going to put this thing? You know, sometimes weeds are like that. You just think, I've tried and tried and tried to cut this thing down, and it just keeps growing everywhere. Well, God's seed is not a weed. It's a fruitful thing that the enemy and sin uh, tries to cut down, but he just can't cut it down. He can't remove it. He can't pull up its roots. God will continue to sustain his people, even as he did in the day of Elijah. And, and so you've got this per- personal example uh, of Paul, the theological example uh, or answer, I should say, not example, answer of Paul, the, the theological, I've foreknown these people. And here's this historical reason. God's always operated this way. Don't think that this is anything different. Don't think that because there's a small number of, of Jewish believers against the mass of Jews that this is something new. This is the way God has operated and will continue to operate. Which then brings us to the last, the contemporary. Uh, Paul says, just as it was with Elijah, it's the same now. He says in verse 5, So too, at the present uh, time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So as there was this faithful minority that had not bowed down to Baal, there's now a faithful minority that has not bowed down to the refusing of the gospel. It's almost those things are similar, bowing down to Baal or bowing down to this refusal of the gospel. And he says, of course, chosen by grace. It's interesting, Paul adds this little phrase in verse 6, I've kept for myself. It's not in the original. But Paul adds that to underscore the nature of God's sovereign work to draw these people to himself and have them for himself. It's a beautiful little phrase. 
And that's why he would pick any one of you. That's why any one of you would trust in God, trust in Christ, as God saying, I want you for myself. I want us to have fellowship. I died, my son died so that I could have you for myself, so that we could dwell together forever. And so this is preserved by God for his own gracious purposes. Um, and the, you can't really see it in the uh, English, but the, the same word remnant in verse 5 is related directly to I have kept for myself. It's almost that I've remnanted for myself. I've made a remnant. I've made a remain. Uh, and this is the remnant. Um, and God is the one who did it. Uh, the apostasy of Israel to God's purpose in Christ is no different than the aggravated apostasy of Israel in the days of Elijah. And in the midst of that apostasy, in the midst of almost completely rejecting God, God still is drawing himself by his own mercy uh, a people. And this remnant is bearing witness to Jesus as Messiah. This remnant is faithfully proclaiming and living out the truth of the gospel, even to the greatest cost of themselves. And we need to appreciate why we're here. We are here because of the faithful remnant of Jews that God preserved at this point. Many of these believing Jews would lose their lives. Many more would be ostracized from Jewish society, impoverished by that rejection. Others in prison having all their possessions seized. These were Jewish Christians. Why did they do it? For the sake of others, many Gentiles. Glorious, the love of these Jewish Christians who sacrificed everything to get the gospel out to this world. And of course, many themselves were killed. We think all of the original apostles were killed, uh, if tradition holds. Paul himself lost his life uh, because of the gospel. But by this, they planted this gospel firmly in the soil of history. So we thank God you know, for this faithful remnant that stood in this day, even as Elijah and the remnant stood in that day. And, of course, chosen by grace. Grace here is used in the same way as mercy in chapter 9. We were talking about he has mercy on some and hardens others. And, and he, you remember he dealt with uh, Isaac and Ishmael, and he said it was God's mercy only that separated them. And Jacob and Esau and what, had nothing to do with their works. It was only God's mercy. And it's the same thing with the remnant. Uh, he didn't uh, run a survey of the best Jews in the league, so to speak, whose records showed that they deserved to be on the all-star remnant team. Okay? It wasn't that. There were no resumes of achievement, of work well done. Every person of the remnant was there in spite of his or her own sin. It was grace. Just like with Isaac and Ishmael and just like with Jacob and Esau. It's grace, only grace. And so where he used mercy in chapter 9, he's using grace in this way. And it couldn't be shown any more, could it, than the fact that Israel herself had crucified Messiah. Can you imagine coming into uh, application to a relationship with God and God's pulling out and saying, okay, let me see what you've done. Okay, first thing, uh, crucified Messiah. Hmm. I don't think this is going to be by works, is it? <laughs> no. In fact, the gospel goes first to those people. 
Talk about mercy. Talk about the fact that it's by grace alone that this remnant is formed. He forms his remnant of those who crucified his own son. By grace, he has chosen these people. By grace, he's chosen these people. Peter says, right there in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, Karl Barth wrote this. I don't approve of everything Karl Barth wrote. Okay, but this is a great statement. God has always acted by grace. The works of Israel are of no avail either to establish the covenant, okay, to maintain the covenant or to annul the covenant. I like that last word. We can't annul the covenant. We can't annul our relationship that God has committed himself to. He's sovereign and he will fulfill his purpose. That's why we're safe. Not safe to just go and do what we want, but just safe to know his mighty hands are on my life. He knew my sin before he chose me and he drew me to himself in spite of my sin. He died for sinners. He justifies the ungodly. He chooses by grace and grace alone. So the first day of the outpouring of the Spirit, God saves 3,000 of his people who are part of the crucifying of his own son. And so Jesus' prayer is answered on the cross, isn't it? Forgive them. They know not what they do. And there was the fulfillment of that prayer, the answer to that prayer of God bringing those very ones to himself. And as he says here, if it's uh, because of works, then grace is totally out the window. It's no longer grace. If any part of their being included was because of their works, grace is over. Grace is destroyed. Grace is no longer grace. And we could say further, if it's own works, then man is at the center of this thing, not God and his mercy and his sovereign grace. Man is at the center. If it stands on works, then there's not helpless dependence on God's mercy. There's only self-help in this world, and self-help is doomed. If man is at the center, if it depends on our strength, then we're lost before we've begun. We're dead in the water. We will only grow more and more committed, each one of us, to ourselves, our own rights, our own prerogatives, our own will, our own choices. The heart of humility is torn out. Servanthood is a joke. Every man for himself to try and justify ourselves, excuse ourselves, commend ourselves, promote ourselves, because we're our own gods and there's nobody as important as me, including God, because I am the one that's at the center of everything. If it stands on works, then grace with all of its breathtaking human beauty and dignity and compassion that it brings into human society, that grace is gone. If it's works, it's no longer grace. And then, and so I I urge you, I will urge you, don't resist this grace. Because of time, I want to go on to the final verses which give the other side of this. He says, the elect obtained it. And we know the elect that here he's talking about primarily the elect from the Jews, but this includes, of course, the elect Gentiles. So uh, as the Jews thought of themselves as the exclusive people by obeying their laws, that they would be the only people of God and everyone else excluded. Now, Paul says, 
a portion from them and a portion from the Gentiles make up those who belong to Messiah. And now those who were the people are no longer his people if they have refused Messiah. Um, And so the others are hardened. And this is where we get our title. Either grace, salvation by grace, trusting in God helplessly, or the alternative, hardening. So some were obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And I want to make it clear again about hardening. It's never that God hardens a soft heart, right? Someone loves God, someone worships God, someone adores God. But God says, you know, sorry, you're not chosen. I'm going to harden your heart against me. It's not that. And I, I, thought, I think this verse in Isaiah 63 can really help in this regard. It may not seem at first that it does, but bear with me. Here's the verse, Isaiah 63, 17. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Now that sounds serious. Why do you make us wander from you and you harden our hearts so that we don't fear you? Now, you would think the next word would be, go away, right? If it really means that we were doing fine without you, but now you're turning us away, you're making us wonder, you're keeping us from fearing you. But there's a surprising word after he says, why do you make us wonder? Why do you harden our hearts? Why do you keep us from fearing you? Return. Return. See what that means? It means that, Lord, we have been left to ourselves. And if left to ourselves, all that happens is our hearts are hardened. All that happens is we more and more don't fear you. All that happens is we more and more wander from you. Oh, Lord, return. So we won't be hardened. So if basically we're saying, Lord, don't leave me to myself any longer. Don't leave me to my own wandering and hardness of heart. Don't leave me to my lack of awe and love and adoration. Don't leave me to this or I will be hardened. And so uh, Israel, he says, uh, failed to obtain what it was seeking. They failed to obtain a righteous standing with God. And as we learned in chapter 9 and 10, they did so because they, they sought to do it by works. They sought to establish their own righteousness. So they didn't attain it. But the elect attained it because the elect found it by trusting in God's grace, which the Jews as a whole refused. Well, the two quotes end out this section as he does in every one of these sections. He, he ends with these quotations from the Old Testament and he, he quotes from uh, the law and the prophets uh, and the Psalms in this section. But notice this, this prayer that David offers, uh, well, in, chapter, in verses 9 and 10 and then in uh, verse 8 it's from Deuteronomy, except this first line he borrows from Isaiah, this phrase, a spirit of stupor, a spirit of stupor. And this is so much like what Paul talks about in Second Corinthians, where he says this veil is still over the, the Jewish heart. And it, it, it's because the God of this world has blinded them. And here's that idea, a spirit of stupor. Uh, stupor can be compared to, say, a nearby bomb blast. And you've seen people almost in a daze after a, a near, not close enough to, 
kill them, but to, to daze them. And their eyes are open, but they're really not seeing anything. Or, or like a concussion or like a stroke. And a person's eyes are open, and yet you realize they, they're not there. And he says, this is what has happened to Israel. A spirit of stupor. It's, it's, it shows us that sin as human beings, abandoning God to live for ourselves, it staggers us. It stuns us. It dismantles us spiritually. And we can't come to on our own. We, we can't see reality on our own. We desperately need help. That's the picture of us spiritually. We can't wake up and see reality. We can't see the reality of Christ It is like a spiritual stroke. And if he leaves us that way, we will stay that way until we die. And so we ask God to intervene, intervene for ourselves, intervene for others. Like someone in deep trouble with substance abuse and they can't see themselves. They're in this destructive nosedive. They need intervention. God intervenes in our lives by his grace. But here's this awful prayer that in their rejection of God... They're given over to this uh, spirit of stupor so that they would not see. And then David uh, gives this tragic statement. And what's so sad about this is that it is actually a statement to his enemies. But, but see how this works. Here's David, the, the type of Christ, Messiah to come. Okay, David is talking about his enemies now. Christ is the fulfillment of David, and who are his enemies? The Jews themselves. That's what's so sad about this statement. Written originally to the enemies of the Jews through David, now Paul says the sad thing is because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic kingship, now the enemies have become the Jews themselves. And this, this picture of a table then becoming these four things, a snare, a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution, uh, the idea there is that this table, this thing that on which we're depending, uh, has then becomes to us the most dangerous, terrible thing. It, it becomes that which uh, is, turns into a, like a terrible bear trap to clamp down on your soul, a snare to enslave you, a fatal slip and fall over the edge of a cliff to your death, the very reason you will be judged. And so if you depend on anything apart from God, and this is your table, and this is your dependence, and this is what you're looking to for life, it will turn into all of these things because nothing will satisfy you. You will be destroyed if you sit at table seeking anything else but God and His mercy and grace in Christ. It's either grace or hardening. And then the same final statement here, they bend their backs forever. So instead of the picture of you thinking you're at a table feasting, you're really bent over. Uh, We've seen there's a member, a a closely related in Kay's family, who had this terrible uh, back problem in which he really had to walk like this, literally, everywhere. And he would look up at you, I mean, stooped way over. And we've seen others just because of, because of old age, stooped over and bent. And the idea is, is bent over in bondage. The sad thing is, people in the world cut off from the life of God are pictured in this way, bent over, even though they don't even realize their own condition, you know. They don't even realize... What is going on in their lives? 
And you look at this person, you say, oh, that's so sad. That's not how human beings meant to walk. And we say this of all of those apart from Christ. And so to be cut off from God is to be cut off from what you were made for, the one you were made to serve, the one you were made to live in fellowship with, the one you're made to be in fellowship with in every experience of life. That's the best part of life. It's what life's all about. And to be cut off from that is like to go through your life just bent over. But in the case of the Jews, it shows that even religious people can be bent over in a slavery. Even religious people... The words of Godet are so striking. He says, they're slaves of their law, their rabbis, and even their God. In other words, you can be enslaved as just a religious person who at heart rejects the mercy of God because you don't think you need forgiveness. Then you've made God out to be your tyrant. You've made God out to be this one that you've got to please and you've got to perform for because you've refused His mercy. Or you've refused His mercy thinking, you know, I've just done too many bad things. I've I've ruined everything so badly. There can't be mercy for me. Well, no, there is not a God like that. You can make up one if you want and be bent over in religious exercise, but that's not the true God. This God shows mercy. Bestowing his riches on all who call upon him, as we saw in chapter 10. Let me close with just a few statements that maybe can make some application of what hardness in heart, hardness of heart looks like in a person's life. First, it is a refusal to turn to him. We read of 21-year-old Zedekiah became a king at the end of Israel's existence uh, before they were exiled. And it says of him that he stiffened his neck, hardened his heart against turning to the Lord. So hardness of heart causes you to refuse to turn to his mercy, to turn to his grace, to turn to his offer of relationship. Secondly, it's a refusal of his kindness. The first text is 2 Chronicles 36. Earlier in Romans chapter 2, he says... You're presuming on the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. You have a hard, impenitent heart. Oh, dear friend, to harden yourself against the kindness of God. The kindness of God in offering His Son to you. It's one of the signs of a hardness of heart. Thirdly, it's a refusal to trust. As you read Hebrews 3 and 4, It talks about Israel refusing to believe in the goodness of God to go into the land and how it spoke of their hardness of heart. And he says in Hebrews 3, "Be, be, exhort one another so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Continue to trust in His mercy. Trust Him, trust Him, trust Him. Many times I've struggled with this as well. People will be talking about how they're struggling with sin and they fail so many times. What do I do? Trust, 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 trust. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that tells you you're not worthy anymore to trust. There's no possibility of trust anymore. You've been cut off from that that pathway of trust. No, that's the deceitfulness of sin. We're always to be helplessly trusting. We always, as I put it in counseling so many times, you always get to say, save me. 
save me. Keep saving me. Sometimes that's all you can say. No, you can't say, I'm going to, I'm good. You just, like the blind part, save me, save me. Hardness of heart gets you to a point where you don't think that I can just say, save me. Hardness of heart is a refusal to be honest about your own sin. Proverbs 28 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. In the next phrase, he talks about hardening your heart. So, uh, you conceal your transgressions is right there saying, There is no mercy, there is no forgiveness. I've got to hide. I've got to excuse my sin. I've got to, uh, I've got to uh, turn away from my sin, not admit my sin. But that's a hardness of heart to live with your sin, to let it fester, to let it be this private thing that more and more takes over your life. That is hardness of heart. It is a refusal, fifthly, to recognize, enjoy, adore, and live for God's glory. Psalm 95 and Numbers 14 pull together the idea of hardness of heart and the fact that they had seen His glory in Egypt as they, the, the people in the, uh, of Israel who are about to go into the land and refused to trust God. And He says, you've seen my glory, but you won't admit it. You won't recognize it. You won't adore me for it. You won't embrace me in it. Don't harden yourself against God's glory. Even all mankind was described in Romans 1 as refusing the glory of God in creation. Your heart should be open and soft and always running to praise, always admiring Him, always adoring Him in creation and redemption. And so we pray always, Lord, free up my heart, free up my heart so that I will adore You and be free to glorify Your name. And... Finally, the hardness of heart is not to submit to his sovereign hand, that he's the only one that can heal you. You know, if I said to you, it's, it's interesting in Ezekiel 18, it says, make for yourself a new heart. And you and I would say, that's crazy. Okay? If I said that to you and I wasn't quoting scripture, you'd say, he's preaching heresy. He stood up there and said, make for yourself a new heart. Nobody can make for themselves a new heart. But if I said to you, get yourself 20-20 vision, you'd know I didn't mean go fix your own eyes. <laughs> go to somebody to have your eyes, okay? Uh, as we, as Kay said to her mother and I said to my mother with their hurt, their knees and their limping, we said, get you a new knee. Well, what did I think? You know, she's going to go, you know, construct herself a knee. Well, no. And so God is the only one that can do it. And have you gone under the knife, so to speak, of God's grace? We're told in Colossians that our hardness of heart, our being dead in our own sins, is conquered because He circumcises our hearts with the circumcision without hands in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus changes even the hardness of heart. No matter what the condition, you may have heard all this and said, you know, none of this means anything. I have no feeling for God. You could at least begin by saying, oh, Lord, I want to go under the knife of your heart surgery. Save me in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that 
You, by your Holy Spirit, renew our hearts. and You create in us life. And you make us alive together, even though, as Paul said, we were dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of our flesh. In ourselves, we are hopeless. But your salvation comes to us. Your invitation comes to every one of us, no matter what our condition. And it says, I will bring about forgiveness for you, restoration for you, renewal for you, hope for you throughout your life and forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, Lord, may none of us here refuse your grace. May none of us here choose the path of hardening to our own destruction so that our own table turns into a terrible trap so that we live life bent over, apart from fellowship with the living God who made us. Oh, bless us, Lord, to that end. In Jesus' name. Pleasing is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?